Evening, church. Prophetic conference, indeed. Shifty guy on the video, don't trust him much, so just disregard that. But it really is going to be um, an amazing moment. You know, I, I, and I know that, I know every year it comes back, so they're going to say the same thing. But I, I have such an expectation this year, especially in light of some pretty scary stuff that just continues to happen around the world. Now, whether it's terrorist attacks in places, whether it is our, our current climate, both politically and economically in this nation, I don't know about you, but I increasingly need to be seeing things through spiritual and not natural eyes. And so I think developing both the skills and the will to do that, hear from some, some really mature prophetic ministers. And there's a lot of prophetic ministers out there who just, they're just not real mature. And, but I can tell you that having walked with Pastor Jim LaFoon now for, you know, gosh, going on 40 years and uh, having ministered uh, along with and watched Jane Hammond for probably the last decade or so, uh, you will not find more credible prophetic ministers on the planet. And so I want to encourage you if you're saying, well, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm not X, Y. And let me tell you, you, you really do need to be here in light of the moment that we live in. Somebody say amen. Tremendous. Well, we're now in week six of just the pattern of prayer. This was supposed to be two or three weeks, and now I'm in week six. And so don't take much of what I say uh, literally because it won't be that way. And last week, we were talking about the power and the practice of praying the Scripture. Um, and I got to, I, I, I finished last week, two minutes over, and realized that I had not covered the, the, the subject matter, but more importantly, had I not gotten through the subject matter, we didn't practice doing it in this room. And so hence tonight, we're going to come back and we're going to finish this. But we, I, I quoted a couple of folk last week, Ian Bounds, who said, the word of God is the fulcrum upon which the lever of prayer is placed. Love that statement, how true it is. And then Joni Erickson Tata made the statement that the Bible as the inspired word of God is God's language. And to the extent that we've learned to pray in the name of Jesus, we need to learn to pray in the name of this Bible, in the name of what? God's word, because God said it. That's pretty much the end of that. I mean, growing up, that was the end of any discussion in the household. That was it. That was the punctuation mark. Why? 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 And then finally, when one of the two parents would say, because I said so, that was the moment if you had IQ even in double digits. I mean, just slightly above that of tree bark, you realize that that moment, the discussion had officially ended and it was getting ready to move from a verbal exchange to one that probably had some physical implications that were going to come next. Anyone understand what I'm saying here? And so we figured it out from mom and dad that when they said, because I said so, that was the complete end of the discussion. How many of you know that God's word is the I said so? That becomes the end of the discussion. I don't care who says it, what scientist, what philosopher, what discovery, whatever book is written by somebody that thinks that they're smart, whatever is between these two covers, because I said so, that becomes the 
not only the beginning, but the end of the matter. Amen? So tonight I want to talk briefly about the power and practice of praying Scripture again, but I want to break it down into four parts. Identification, meditation, repetition and remembrance, and application through personalization. The first, identification. Now, there are many reasons why we study the Bible, and they're all valid. We know that this Bible, it's a book of rules. It's a book of the law, what we should do, what we should not do. It is a book of life, how we do life. And if we do life according to what the Word says, we get life what? More abundantly. It's a book about relationships with each other, husbands, wives, parents, children, how we're supposed to model something together here as this community known as the church. We can read the Bible for its historical merits. We can approach it from a strictly didactic, intellectual, we can, we can extract doctrine from it in systematic theology, and we can geek out in this word. But it's the identification of the person of God, Jesus Christ. That is what this book is about. Someone said the Old Testament, Christ concealed. The New Testament, Christ revealed. And every book of this Bible, from Genesis to Revelation, points to Christ in some form. Post-resurrection, I mentioned this in the transition on Sunday, just the the complete utter chaos in John 20 as Mary and then a couple of the disciples, they come and, you know, they, they, they go into the tomb and it's nothing's making sense. It doesn't work. But it says in verse 9 of John 20, speaking of John and Peter, said they still did not understand from Scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. So Jesus had been pointing them to scriptures, but they hadn't made the connection yet that everything Jesus had been pointing them to was about him. It was about him. You see, after the destruction of the Temple of Solomon in 586 B.C., Jewish scholars of the exile substituted study of the law for the observance of temple ritual and sacrifice. They They believed that the very study of Scripture itself would bring life. And so the act of getting into this Bible, tearing it apart, the actual, the the mechanics of studying this would bring forth life. And by doing this, of course, they missed the chief subject of the Old Testament revelation, the law, the prophets, the Psalms, all pointing to Jesus. And, of course, we know Jesus rebuked his hearers for completely missing it. Luke chapter 24, verses 44 through 49, he said to them, this is what I told you while I was still with you, that everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. Then it says, he opened their minds so that they could understand the scriptures. Now, I don't know exactly what that looked like or felt like or what he said or if that was a laying on of hands or whatever that impartation was. But all of a sudden, Jesus did something so that they had this aha moment. You ever had this aha moment where all of a sudden this connected to this 
And you step back and it's just like, I cannot believe it's been like that the entire time, but I didn't see it. It's like you trying to figure out something on your smartphone and someone half your age grabs it. You you know what I'm talking about. And they push a couple of buttons, you know, and toast comes out or something. You you had no idea that it would do this or you've been trying to figure out how to get a Pop-Tart out of your iPhone for the past. You, You just had no idea and they just went click, click, and all of a sudden it's just like, I, I can do that. This is, this is what happened in this particular moment. Something miraculous happens. John chapter 5, 39, this is the rebuke that Jesus had. You study the scriptures because you think that by them you possess eternal life. What did he say? These are the scriptures that what? Testify about me. So the very first thing is we talk about how we connect prayer and Scripture is that Scripture, if we are approaching it correctly, won't won't just be this standalone exercise, but every encounter that we have with Scripture will bring us into greater proximity with Christ. It will bring us into a greater knowledge of who He is, what He did. Etc., etc., etc. Now, I mean, again, we can approach the Bible for all of these other reasons. What does the Bible have to say about how I treat my wife? How, what does the Bible say about my money? Yes, it's a great, it, it's, a, it's a great resource for life. But if we only use it as a handbook and we don't use it as a guidebook to get to God, to get to Christ, then somehow the primary intent of Scripture is lost on you and I. Very first thing is identification. The second, meditation. Now, this is a word that from a Christian pulpit, people begin to just go, talk about another word that's been hijacked. How many of you know there's some words that have been hijacked that we can't use anymore? I mean, very, very nice words, and they're words that I can't even say from the pulpit because you would think that I was being nasty. But are words that a, gen- that, that a generation or two ago were completely in the common vernacular. Now, these words have been hijacked to mean something else. Well, the word meditation is one of those words. Because now when we hear the word meditation, we think of yoga mats, and we think of Zen, and we think of Eastern religions, and we think of everything that a Christian is not supposed to be doing, right? So we're just a little bit put off by that whole concept of meditation. Matter of fact, you don't hear Christians even talk about that much. And yet, meditation It's not just a biblical word. It's used dozens of times in the Psalms. It's a biblical concept as well. And something that we need to bring back, quite frankly, into our spiritual disciplines. And we talk about the spiritual disciplines of prayer. We talk about the spiritual disciplines of of reading our Bible. But what about the spiritual disciplines of meditation? One commentator, and I quote, the biblical worldview is completely at odds with the pantheistic concepts driving Eastern meditation. 
We're not one with an impersonal absolute being that is called an impersonal absolute being that's called God. Rather, we are estranged from the true person of God because of our true moral guilt, as Francis Schaeffer says. No amount of chanting, breathing, visualizing, or physical contortions will melt away the sin that separates us from the Lord of the cosmos, however peaceful these practices may feel. But the answer to our plight is not found in some higher level of consciousness, but in placing our faith in the unmatched achievements of Jesus Christ on our behalf. You see, the goal of Meditation for a believer is not to achieve a, some zero state, not to achieve a higher state of consciousness, but to create a higher state of awareness and consciousness of God. This is what Christ, this is the goal of Christian meditation. Contemporary theologian E.P. Clowney, who was the first president of Westminster Theological Seminary, talks about three dimensions of Christian meditation. The first is that Christian meditation is grounded in the Bible. It's fascinating. And I'll, I'll show you another one that was 400 years previous to this. Grounded in the Bible because the God of the Bible is a personal God who speaks in words of revelation. Christian meditation responds to this revelation and focuses on that aspect. The second distinctive mark of Christian meditation is that it responds to the love of God. And the third dimension is that the revelations of the Bible and the love of God leads to the worship of God. But it's interesting that primary, even in this theologian's understanding and explanation of Christian meditation, it starts in where? The Word. 400 years prior, St. Francis de Sales used a four-part approach to Christian meditation. He calls preparation, consideration, affections and resolutions, and conclusions. And in the preparations part, one places himself in the presence of God and the Holy Spirit to direct the prayer. And we'll talk about this. Over the, when we get to that in the next couple of weeks, we'll talk about that. Number two, I, we're going to get there eventually. That's the preparation. But the second, in the consideration, one focuses on the Bible, or a passage of the Bible. In the affections and resolutions, one focuses on feelings and makes a resolution or decision. And in the conclusion, one gives thanks and praise to God for the considerations and asks for the grace to stand by the resolutions. Fascinating that these two theologians stand 400 years apart, and yet they all come down to the very, very same conclusions about Christian meditation. And its origin in God's word. It's powerful. In short, meditation them as a form of prayer is vitally connected to our meditation of scripture. Again, as a means of knowing him better. And meditating on scripture. Once again, it's not just a matter of how many words can I chew up in one sitting of this Bible. It's a matter that if you need to spend the next two years in one verse, squeeze it till the juice stops coming out of it. I watched my, grandma, my mother teach my grandsons how to eat ribs. Now, you got to understand there's some art to certain things. 
eating ribs, chicken on the bone, how to eat fish with bones in it. I mean, these are skills that are lacking in this younger generation. I mean, they think chickens run around as little nuggets in the yard, you know? Fish don't have bones, ribs, a McRib. Let's not even talk about that. It shouldn't be called that at all, all right? And watching, watching my mother teach my grandsons how to eat ribs. And you know how kids start out, you know, they, they take a couple of bites and then they, they place it aside. They don't understand that the meat's sweeter closer to the bone. And you got to keep chewing. Do you understand? You've got to keep chewing to get all of the essence of that sanctified pork, all of that, all of that holy hog off that bone. Do you understand what I'm saying? You got to go for it. Generational transfer at its best right there. But you see, getting all the meat off that bone, it's like, Meditating on the scripture. Finally have an analogy you can relate to in this room. I knew if we got down, I knew if we got down to barbecue, somebody there'd be a connection here somewhere. Some 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 kind of recognition. Okay, finally, the man's talking my language here. I got it. But that's what meditation is, is we don't just take nibble nibble and set it aside. And we go get another one and say, nibble, nibble, and set it aside. Is that we grab that sucker and we keep chewing on it. We get everything because the more you chew on it, the better it gets. I'm going to tell you, we were so committed to this in our household that God is my witness. My daughter is probably watching my live stream tonight, so I'm going to uncover her. She actually teethed on chicken bones. My daughter had a skill. She could clean a bone. Let me just tell you, she was good at it. And parents are going, ooh, does Gerber make that? No, God made that. It's called a chicken. Got a bone in it. <laughs> Worked great. And she's teaching her boys how to eat chicken on the bone too. Let me just tell you, love parenting. All right. That's what meditation is. That's how we approach this word. Then this repetition and remembrance. Matthew 6, Jesus again rebuking and making reference to the Pharisees' way of approaching both the study of Scripture and prayer. He says, when you pray, don't keep babbling like pagans, for they think they'll be heard because of their many words. And it's a passage in the Old Testament that God is actually saying, you tire me with all your words. You see, there's an agreeing with by repeating what God has said about you or a given situation that's powerful. God, you said, not God, I'm saying. We have some language that we've developed in our charismatic Pentecostal world. There's some languages about how we say things and we want God to move and we use certain language that I'm still not wholly comfortable with. But I'm very comfortable with reminding God what he has said out of his word. And there's a way that we can remind him and not assault him. You know, it's one thing for my children to remind me of a promise. It's another thing for my children to demand that promise. 
I mean, the difference is, you know, Dad, you said that after, you know, after dinner tonight, we were going to go get ice cream. That's a reminder of the promises. Another thing, say, hey, where are my ice cream? Come on, old man, are you getting, are you getting deft on me? Let's go, chip chop. It's Rocky Road time. Let's go. Shundai. And yet, sometimes I hear in our Pentecostal fervor, I hear a lot of the latter rather than the former. I hear a lot of demands, and we're using all the right words, but we're using all the right words in a very demanding way. In a way that I kind of wonder if our tenor and our posture, God is saying, I'm recognizing my words, but somehow they're coming back to me not the way that I intended them at all when I said them to begin with. Hmm. Parents say, repeat after me, don't they? Good parenting, repeat after me. What did I say? One, because it promotes understanding. Do you hear me? Are you hearing me? It's like Medea. My wife and I, one of our favorite scenes in one of the Medea movies, she's got this little girl on the porch. What did I tell you about that phone? Hang it up, put it on the hook. Put it on the hook. I just, I just I love it. You got to love those babies. But somehow by repeating we have an under... Now, what did I say? There was a comedian one time that... that he, and he made, he made the reference, what did I say? You told me not to drink your drink. What did you do? I drank your drink. So by repetition, we're reminded of what God said, correct? And that repetition then hopefully leads us to obedience, hearers and doers. The blessing of obedience, the lack thereof is a product of disobedience. And covenant prayers throughout Scripture are reminding before God what he said and what he's previously done. The language of covenant, God, of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, it's always covenantal language. Speaking to generations, generational faithfulness that God has had to his promises and his purposes, even in the light of unfaithful Israel. Oh, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, most of the time, there's a history lesson that's going to follow that. Or most of the time, there's going to be a reminder and a repetition of some promise that God made generationally down down, down the way. See, Scripture does that. It reminds us. That's why praying Scripture is important. It reminds us God did this. And God doesn't need reminding, by the way. He's God. You and I are the ones that need reminding. This is why we repeat these things to ourselves. And it's not for, it's, 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 (laughs) Jeremiah 14, 29, it says, For the sake of your name, don't despise us. Don't dishonor your glorious throne. Remember your covenant with us and don't break it. Repetition and remembrance. And then lastly, 
It's what I call application through personalization. It's where we take Scripture beyond the theological and the theoretical, and we bring it into the practical where we can apply what the Word is saying to us. I'm going to make a statement that's going to sound extremely arrogant, but I'll, I will qualify it. So, you know, don't just hit, don't stop listening and label me a heretic at this point. But if I never heard another teaching ever or got another piece of information or revelation from God, I've already got enough to live out two lifetimes to try to apply and be obedient to. Now, that doesn't mean I stop. I mean, we're getting ready to have a prophetic conference here, and we'll hear marvelous things. We'll be reminded of God's faithfulness and the covenantal things of God. Maybe we'll hear some revelational things as to what God is doing and wants to do. But the reality is, if you're like I am and you've just been around the church for a moment, you and I have a lot that's already here. The issue is not ignorance for most of us. The issue is application. How do I take all of this wonderful stuff, all of these podcasts, all these blogs, all these books that are on our sagging shelves that we picked up at conferences, how do I apply that to my life? Anybody with me here? And for many of us, Scripture and prayer, they're, they're detached. They're these things that happen out here, but they're not personal. It's why we go through the motions without the emotions many times. And let me say this, the pulpit is not the primary place where application occurs. If you're relying on this desk right here, regardless of how competent that desk might be, wherever it might be around the world. But if you're looking for this pulpit to be the primary place where Scripture is applied to your life, you're missing it. It can't happen. There's no way that in 30 or 40 minutes of a message that there can be enough unpacking and application for every ear that hears that message for it to possibly be personalized. It's just not possible. Now, hear me. Can it be catalytic? Absolutely. It is, an, is it important? Absolutely. But it's through the prayer and meditation and both informed by and conformed to Scripture. This is where we personalize this word, and this is where this personalization, this is where we make it ours. And sometimes it's as easy as replacing pronouns. It's as simple as that.